Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos. Today we'll be talking to Tyler McBrien, the managing editor of Lawfare, about his recent article in Foreign Policy on U.S. Overseas Bases. First, let's turn to some of the other foreign policy stories out there right now. President Biden canceled the last two legs of his Asia-Pacific trip last week to return to Washington because of debt ceiling negotiations. He was due to visit Papua New Guinea as the first sitting president to go to that country and then continue on to Sydney for a quad summit with Japan, India, and Australia. The quad summit ended up being held on the sidelines of the G7 meeting in Japan, but the decision to cancel prompted a great deal of hand-wringing and whining in the press and from China hawks that China was benefiting because Biden had gone home early. As the Quincy Institute's Sarang Shidore pointed out, the cancellation didn't matter very much, and he argued that the thing we should pay more attention to is the new defense agreement with Papua New Guinea and the larger containment policy of which it's a part. As he said, there is currently very little debate within America of expanding the U.S. military footprint in Asia and the Pacific. And as it turned out, the defense agreement was concluded despite Biden's cancellation. Instead of worrying about snubbing Papua New Guinea, shouldn't we be asking why the U.S. needs base access in that country? Uh, so what do you think, Kelly? Was the cancel trip an own goal in the competition with China, or is the competition rivalry framing of the U.S. approach to the Asia-Pacific the real problem? I mean, I think it's a real problem. And um, the cancellations aside, I think the the flurry of meetings that we saw last week between the G7 and the Quad and the side meetings that took place between numerous leaders and uh, their counterparts in the U.S. government, uh, it shows that the U.S. government is bent on creating a security architecture against China and that these leaders from the region, whether it be Modi in, in India all the way down to Papua New Guinea, have their own interests in protecting, uh, and they are not necessarily falling in line. Um, I do agree with my colleague, Sarong, and that we, we do need to look a little closer at this Papua New Guinea military pact that was signed. I mean, it's a foregone conclusion. Now, there's nothing to, that we can do about it. But it really, um, it, it, it reminds me, it has echoes of the agreement that was just passed between the Philippines and the United States, which we talked about in the last show, in that uh, we are creating um, these cooperative pacts with, uh, with nations which are strategically placed in the the sphere of influence that we want in that region. And uh, we will go to great lengths. And in this case with Papua New Guinea, we are promising them not only we're not only um, aid uh, more generally, but to beef up their disaster uh, response efforts. Uh, we will be engaging in Coast Guard patrols with them. We are giving them a bunch of stuff. Um, and, and they know this. And they're playing us like a fiddle as well. Uh, this is uh, not a rich country. And uh, these negotiations have been going on for some time. And we feel that if we have, we have to, we will lock down each of these, South, uh, each of these Pacific Islander nations um, so that we have a foothold. Uh, we have this sort of lily pad uh, approach to the region. And I know that, you know, Biden took some heat for canceling his trip. He, he sort of had to, there is sort of a debt ceiling crisis going on here in the country. Uh, Secretary of state Blinken actually took his place and, and met anyway, but he ended up inviting the leader as well as a number of other um, Pacific Islander nations to the white house again, 
which they had already been here within the last year. Uh, so this shows the, the strategic importance, at least on be, that, that the, that the White House sees in, in nailing down all of, um, these countries to be part of this alliance. But how far that goes, we, we just don't know in, in terms of what they'll actually, what we will get in return for it. Sure. And, and one of the results or one of the consequences of the G7 summit, uh, and, and the, the communique that they put out uh, was that China was extremely angry uh, at my, many of the statements that they made in the communique. Uh, if, if there was any chance of trying to thaw relations, to improve relations with China, it seems like the, the G7 meeting uh, took us in very much in the wrong direction as far as that goes, uh, because the Chinese reaction was extremely uh, negative. Uh, uh, turning to that G7 meeting, uh, the, the communique that I mentioned uh, covered a, a wide range of issues. Uh, the problem, as uh, Van Jackson pointed out in his substack a few days ago, is that many things included in the statement bear no resemblance to reality. Uh, and that follows the pattern we've seen with other official statements uh, where U.S. and allied officials will say many of the right things, uh, will say many reassuring and accommodating things, but those statements conceal policies that are quite different. Uh, one example that he cited is that the G7 states claimed that they are taking concrete steps to strengthen disarmament and nonproliferation efforts, when, of course, there's no evidence of this because the, the opposite is the case. Uh, and, and he runs through the list of all the things that we're either not doing on in pursuit of those goals or uh, things that we're doing that, that take us away from them. Uh, and For example, we're not doing negotiations with North Korea right now. The negotiations for the nuclear deal are basically dead. Uh, we're we're emphasizing our nuclear deterrence commitments to South Korea and Japan, and uh, we don't have a no first use declaratory policy uh, when it comes to using nukes. And so, obviously, we're not working towards disarmament, uh, and haven't been for some time. Uh, our hypocrisy on nuclear weapons is nothing new, but it seems more blatant than usual when we claim that we're working towards eliminating nuclear weapons. When we we all know that that's not the case; that the opposite is very much the case. Um, so the, the problem I saw with the G7 meeting isn't, isn't just that they're making false and misleading statements about their positions and commitments, uh, but that these claims are then taken at face value by the press and public and are treated as a reality of what they're doing. And so we can't really hold them accountable if we can't even get nailed down what it is that they're doing. Uh, what, what was your takeaway from the G7 summits, uh, more generally? Um, and, and then what did you make of some of these statements? Well, one of the um, one of the things that had been reported early on, running up to the G seven, was this idea that the member states were uh, completely fed up with Chinese economic coercion, uh, and they're signaling um, things like you know putting Micron, the microchip make the U.S. microchip maker, under an investigation. They're signaling the the, the sanctions on Australia and, and Canada because of political and trade disputes. What I find as sort of high hypocrisy is that the United States and Western governments have been engaging in economic warfare uh, for, for decades and most recently with the war in Ukraine. And not only have we institute, instituted the most stringent sanctions on Russia in the history of the world. But we have basically signaled to any country that does business 
with Russia, that they will be sanctioned too. And this has gone on for over a year, and the jury seems to be out on whether or not that's actually been effective. But with secondary sanctions, the United States, and I'm not just signaling out the Russia-Ukraine issue, but we're talking about the sanctions emanating from 9-11, counterterrorism, Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, I mean, these are countries who have been under U.S. sanctions, and the U.S. has basically led a regime of coercion with our Western partners and internationally in telling them that they can or cannot do business with these countries or they will be punished. To me, that's coercion. And we have Janet Yellen, who, who's been speaking pretty broadly about this ever since the, the Russian invasion, that you know, that the U.S. and the West is embarking on a new, you know, policy, an economic policy globally in which we will only do business with the countries that rise to the level of our democratic values. And so to me, that too is coercion. And what I, what I, what I, I cannot agree with is this idea that when we do it, it's okay. When China does it, this is evil and this is wrong and this needs to be, you know, sanctioned and condemned by the international community. I hate hypocrisy. This doesn't mean that I agree with everything that China does. I think a lot of the things that they said in the G7 statement talking about human rights and and and, and the and 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 the way that 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 China treats its own people and the fact that there are areas for cooperation and then there are areas where we, we want to, you know, confront China, you know, that that's fine. It's all, it's all part of this diplomatic game, but I, I just don't like the hypocrisy. And I, and I think most people in, you know, most countries in the world, particularly those countries in the global South that have not been four square behind our sanctions regime or the policy in Ukraine, they know that they see the hypocrisy coming down Broadway, and I think that a lot of times these these statements that come out of these big meetings, they're very full throated and um, high and mighty. But you know, until we actually see some some action and some real teeth behind some of these policies, particularly on human rights, it's it's really hard to take it too seriously. Right, and and, the, and there were a number of examples of of this where the the seven states were making claims about their positions that were pretty wildly at odds with their policies, and 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 China policy was uh, a centerpiece of this, where they were claiming that their policies are not aimed at harming China or or uh, undermining Chinese economic development, when that's that is explicitly what exactly. Biden administration policy is aimed at. That's that's the, the sort of the 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 meat of the containment policy is to try to keep China down now, and and the idea that that we're not we're not doing that 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 oh no we we don't mean them any harm at all is is, is laughable and when when we will admit it to ourselves that that's what we're doing but when we're in these international meetings we'll we'll say something else so uh, I mean just one other point about dealing with China uh, there was a I guess a, a brief flicker of hope that the U.S. might lift sanctions on their defense minister uh, because the Chinese were making that a condition of his meeting with Lloyd Austin. And now the the State Department is saying there's no chance of that happening. Uh, There's not going to be any flexibility on that. 
And so that meeting between the defense secretary and the defense minister uh, is not going to happen uh, by by all accounts. And uh, that that's a missed opportunity to try to resume communications between cop military officials. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a it's a shame, and it shows that when it comes right down to it, the the Biden administration isn't that interested in making the thaw that they talk about actually happen. And uh, and I think that's that's going to come back to bite them one of these days. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, I, I don't want to defend China, but when you see the myriad meetings that China and their top leaders have engaged in with other leaders across the board, whether it be Middle East, Russia, Europe, over the course of the last, geez, couple of months, you realize that they are engaging in all sorts of uh, diplomatic entreaty, entreaties signifying, you know, what is becoming this multipolar world. And I know that there was a big article uh, today in Foreign Affairs where they asked uh, international affairs scholars if they believed that the world was moving towards a multipolarity or was was still a unipolar world with the United States leading it. And, okay, the scholars were all over the map. But, I mean, we have to, it, you know, we have to recognize that while we are creating all sorts of obstacles in talking with the Chinese and moving forward and doing some of the things that we say we're going to do, which is cooperating in areas where we can cooperate and pushing back on areas of, of competition. China is moving ahead and it's making friends and it's building ties, creating trade agreements, engaging on uh, security issues in places where we used to be top dog, like, like the Middle East uh, they're pushing this peace plan in Ukraine, whether you believe it could work or not, but they're not the only ones. There are other countries that are also putting themselves forward, saying that they want to be mediators, and they're meeting together. And And we're just on the sidelines saying, well, at least we got our pride, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, like, I feel like I, I, I disagree with those scholars in that foreign affairs piece. We're saying it is... It is still a multi-unipolar world. I understand that this is a process, that the United States still has plenty of power, prestige, wealth to command at any given moment. But I, I do feel like things are moving away from us and they're happening with or without us. You see what's happening in Syria right now in terms of ending the civil war there. The Arab League has has totally embraced Bashar Assad. Things things are moving on. Russia has been having meetings with Iran and, and and Bashar Assad, and we and we maintain the sanctions. And um, you know our our talks have gone nowhere. So thing, things are happening, and I believe that China, for all of its faults, seems more prepared and interested in diplomacy than the United States right now.
Our guest today is Tyler McBrien. He's the managing editor of Lawfare and the author of a new article in Foreign Policy from last week called Why the U.S. Should Close Its Overseas Military Bases. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm a fan, and, and it's nice to be on this side of the microphone for once. I'm usually the one doing the interviews, so this will be a, a, a new test for me. Uh, very good. Well, yeah, we, we look forward to talking about it. I, I, I really enjoyed the article, and it, it tackled this question of our overseas bases uh, from a number of angles. Uh, and you opened the article with, with a, a very important part of the story, uh, which is the discussion of the U.S.-U.K. forced expulsion of the Chagosian people from their land to make way for the base on Diego Garcia. Uh, so tell us more about that uh, and, and what that shows about the costs that overseas, overseas bases impose. Yeah, happy to. Um, so this is a story that was brought to my attention by Philippe Sands and David Vine, among others. Essentially, it's a story of um, that dates back to the 60s and the 70s uh, when the people uh, of the, the Chagos Archipelago, uh, which is in the Indian Ocean, it's, it's um, miles off of uh, Mauritius, uh, were forcibly um, uh, ex- ex- um, forcibly sent away from their homeland uh, to make way for a U.S. base called Diego Garcia. Um, people who people may be familiar with Diego Garcia now; it's one of the most um, important, I would say, bases. Uh, but at the time, it was um, it was brand new, and uh, it was really sort of secret. At the time, it wasn't very well known that this expulsion had taken place. Um, even now it's not really well known. Um, and I think one of the most sort of undercovered aspects of the story, which I talk about is that, uh, human rights watch in its deep documentation of this episode actually laid the charge of, uh, crimes against humanity against the U S and the UK for their role in this. Uh, the first time in human rights watch history, um, that they've, that they've done so. So I, I open this, um, as the sort of moral aspect of, of the, um, need to roll back, uh, our base overseas base presence, uh, but as you kind of hinted at, um, I think it's important to get into the economic, political, and strategic aspects as well. No, definitely, and uh, and one of the the other one one of the other points you were making uh, that I think needs to be emphasized is uh, you say instead of deterring enemies, U.S. overseas bases can often provoke them, uh, and and this uh, definitely deserves to get more attention because well, one of the key arguments for keeping all these bases is that it is supposed to be stabilizing; it's supposed to be improving security for the regions in which those bases are located, uh, but that isn't always the case. Um, a permanent U.S. military presence on other countries' doorsteps can feed their threat perceptions and cause them to build up their own militaries and take provocative actions in, in turn. Uh, and, and we see this uh, with the U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf uh, and in other parts of the Middle East uh, as we build up those forces to supposedly counter the threat from Iran to the forces that we've put there. Uh, so how can the U.S. break out of that cycle? Yeah, that's right. I think it's a classic case of the security dilemma. I mean, other countries see a buildup, um, see a, a sort of encirclement um, of U.S. military forces around them. And um, it seems only natural that, you know, they would perceive um, this as a threat. It's interesting when Eldridge Colby and others um, mentioned that, you know, China's growing presence and, and buildup of bases, which still... Um, is, is quite small in comparison to the United States, uh, should be seen as a threat from the United States, but then, uh, you know, he won't sort of flip that logic on its head and, and think about, you know, the, the Chinese perspective as well. Um, but it's absolutely right that, uh, that bases are seen as a threat, as a, as a, you know, symbol of, of U.S. imperialism. Um, it not only, uh, provokes enemies, but can also, um, one thing I, I try to talk about in my piece is that it, it can really, 
uh, stoke resentment among local populations and governments. And this has been um, a kind of a common thread since uh, the U.S. began its um, policy of overseas basing, uh, even since before the end of World War II, which is really when um, this tenet of U.S. foreign policy was solidified and continued. Um, and sorry, do you do you remind, uh, mind reminding me of, of the original question? I think I, I feel like I've gotten a bit far afield from it. No, that's, that's fine. I, I was just asking how, how we can get out of this cycle where where we build up a military presence to counter a threat when, when in fact our presence is encouraging that threat to grow. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think one of, uh, uh, as, as a sort of mea culpa, I think one of the weakest parts of my article was um, figuring out how to build the political will for closing bases, because I think one of the only ways to do it is is to close them, is to give the territory back. Um, I don't think, as I mentioned in the article, I don't think anyone really uh, credibly thinks we can fully roll back our, our overseas presence, um, nor uh, do they think it's a prudent thing to do. But significantly releasing, uh, reducing it in, in Europe, for example, in the Middle East, um, and, and sort of realigning toward Asia, I think, is something that most policymakers seem to want to do, no matter where you stand on the overseas basing issue. And yet it's not being done. Um, I quote General uh, Mark Milley in the article, um, who has said no, a number of times that uh, we need a reduction in our overseas presence, um, especially in, in CENTCOM and in the Middle East. Uh, and yet um, there's been no significant reduction in, in this um, in bases, overseas basing. So the, the political world is a huge question. Um, one, that's one of the reasons I wanted to highlight that this is a very diverse and growing movement of veterans, policymakers, think tankers on of, of various uh, ideological persuasions. Uh, and yet the bureaucratic stickiness of closing these massive um, bases with huge sunk costs and um, sort of, uh, you know, reliance on, on, on a way of doing things is, is incredibly difficult to, to overcome as anyone who has even glanced at um, government would, would attest to. Thanks for coming on the show, Tyler. Um, just to clarify, how many of these folks want to shift um, the resources and troops to another place like China, as opposed to bringing them home? And do you find that problematic? Uh, the fact that it's just a, it's just shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic, so, so to speak, rather than actually reducing the overall global footprint of the U.S. military? I do. It's a great question. And one that's, I think, one of the most difficult aspects to talk about, especially in, in, in tackling such a big topic in, you know, 1,500 words that the op-ed uh, format, you know, doesn't really lend itself well to such a, a technical and nuanced question. Um, because, as I said, the devil is in the details. You know, it's, it's how many troops, um, how many bases, where should they be drawn down? But I think to answer your question, I get the sense that it's mostly the former. I think it's when these discussions do happen in more mainstream um, places, it's 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 really about realignment. And it's about, as you said, shuffling the deck chairs. Um, but I think, to, as I hope to have made clear in the article, I think the real security dividends come with significant reduction rather than just reshuffling. Absolutely. Um, it must be frustrating, and I don't know how, you know, how much that you, you, you want to flesh this out, but obviously the invasion of Russia caused a major rethink about our investments in NATO, specifically our investments in putting more troops in Europe. 
And I know across the board, members of Congress have vocalized an interest in putting more troops, some even permanently rather than just rotating in and out. So I would imagine this particular debate over the foot, the, the overall U.S. footprint in, in the world is impacted by this particular war. And it's going to be more difficult to make the argument. And I know a lot of our friends, and we've had them on the show, have talked uh, about, you know, shrinking the United States' role in NATO and shifting some of the security burden over to our European partners. But the dynamics are really pushing in another direction. They want more and more U.S. troops um, not our friends, but, you know, members of Congress and the, the Biden administration to be actively stationed in Europe now because of what happened in Ukraine. No, it's true. Um, I think one thing that the invasion has done, however, is is laid bare these assumptions of um, if, if, if to step back. I think the, the two um, you know biggest advocates of, of overseas basing will zero in on two major umbrellas of, um, of reasoning. One being reassurance of allies, the second being deterrence of enemies. I think the Russian invasion, um, has really called into question, especially the second premise of deterrence. Um, deterrence has always been difficult to prove, uh, as, uh, you know, it's, as I said in the article, it's sort of, you know, finding the dog that didn't bark. Um, it's sort of proving a negative, um, and so because of that, I think it's always sort of been taken in mainstream foreign policy circles as, on its face value. Um, it's uh, The Russian invasion happened for many, many uh, multifaceted reasons. Um, but I think it's safe to say that a, a major U.S. troop presence did not deter, uh, in Europe specifically, did not deter the Russian invasion. Um, whether or not it provoked the Russians into um, invading Ukraine is another discussion. Um I, I don't believe so, but I, I think it can be safe to say at this point that it at least didn't deter. So I don't know why um, adding more troops would necessarily um, pr- help the situation. I think that's a, a very common um, sort of knee-jerk reaction from certain foreign policy communities that, you know, of doubling down. You know, we just didn't do it hard enough. We just didn't have enough troops in there. Um, and it, it, I think it shows very one-dimensional thinking, uh, a lack of creativity that you speak about on your show quite often. Yeah, I mean, I'll ask one more question in this vein, but I mean, so where do you see the biggest resistance? Do you see it in the military, which is understandable? They don't want to bring troops home. They have to sustain their their reason for being um, and they have to sustain the budgets they get every year. And so they're not going to advocate a smaller, smaller footprint. But who do you see the other vectors of resistance? Uh, Would it be just the the, their compradors and and. Washington? Are there other special interests politically that are keeping troops, whether it be the NATO troops or the troops in Somalia or in other places that are currently currently operating on these bases? It's a great question. One, admittedly, I haven't delved in too much. Um, I think an interesting thing that I tried to do in the article is, is actually focus on both veterans and current military leaders who are advocating for a rollback in overseas basing. I think many of uh, the people in the military community, uh, whether current or former know this best, that uh, this is an antiquated sort of worldview um, that the, the 
the reasons for maintaining this forward deployed posture haven't held up for decades. Um, and that technologically, politically, it's just, uh, it's no longer tenable. Um, so I think I, I'm not sure exactly where the biggest, um, roadblocks are, but I, I don't necessarily see it as the military. I think, um, as I said, some of some military leaders are, are the ones actually pushing for this the, the hardest, um, as well as veterans. Sure. Um, well, that, that makes sense because the, the more that the U S is able to project power, the, the more likely it is to resort to force. And as we know, ma- many, uh, military officers are reluctant to involve the U S in military interventions, unless there's a prospect of, of succeeding. Uh, uh, the result of that has been that the U.S. relies heavily on military options when other tools are available and, and may be more useful. Uh, but here, here was something that occurred to me uh, thinking about what we what might happen if we actually did shut down a lot of overseas bases and limited our ability to project power to the other side of the world. Uh, do you think that would actually reduce our penchant for military intervention, or would we just pick targets closer to home? Another great question my my reaction would be that it would likely precipitate the former i think if we uh if the us wanted to to pick targets closer to home it would do so anyway uh, i don't think we were that uh, you know prohibited in in our reach in the in the western hemisphere um i think you know i, I one person who writes about this quite clearly and quite i think strongly is john glazer who um, I think recently said he quoted, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the political theorists, but you know, the, the best way to keep people out of trouble is for re- reducing their ability to get into it in the first place. Um, if you have these tools at your disposal, it's very tempting to use them. Um, especially when you sort of establish a dependency on them. Um, I think it's, uh, it, it's interesting that we continue to use these tools despite, um, mixed results at best. Um, but the tools are there nonetheless. Um, and they're sort of ripe for the for the picking for policymakers. Um, and then on the flip side of that, there are very few institutional um, democratic institutional impediments to the use of force. Um, this is well trodden territory. I'm not new in saying that uh, it's it's very easy for the United States to wage war abroad, but having troops already deployed abroad makes it all the more easier. Well, definitely, and and we. Would be, I think we would do very well to, to rein that in. Uh, well, I think one of the things that would need to happen if we're going to scale back the number of bases that we have, we're also going to have to look at giving up uh, quite a few of our security commitments that we currently have. Because as long as those commitments exist, there, there will always be the argument that we have to be able to uh, to protect those commitments. Uh, so we, we, we need to we need to scale back the ambition of our policy uh, if we're going to. Uh, also scale back the the extent of our military involvement wouldn't you say yeah definitely and i think there are there are two questions here the first being you know whether we actually need bases to maintain our commitments i think that's debatable um as i got into in some of the article about technological advances um making a forward deployed posture sort of uh, lowering the, the marginal benefit to that um and then the second being uh is that the united states i think in pairing back some of these overseas bases, it's signaling that the U.S. is being more discriminating uh, in its commitments. I think, you know, if everything has strategic value, then nothing has strategic value. Uh, and, and, and right now, I think that our overseas basing 
footprint is sort of everything everywhere all at once, um, which, you know, has the added um, negative of spreading ourselves too thin. Um, I think, you know, if, if we uh, adversaries know that we can't, for example, we can't, you know, have full scale operations against Russia and China. Um, and so I think this spreading ourselves out across the entire world um, is, is a danger. Uh, well, definitely. And, and the U S is currently overstretched. It has more commitments than it can reasonably uh, honor. And so that, uh, that, that's a really important point that I think needs to be uh, driven home every chance it gets. Um, uh, one of the other things that I uh, enjoyed about the article is the, the focus on the, uh, the effects that our bases have on the local populations uh, to, to remember that the, the costs that are being borne uh, by our presence, often being borne by the, the civilian populations, uh, including in, in uh, you know, formerly allied countries, but we end up treating these populations uh, or can end up treating these populations quite badly. And and so that's a a, a political and moral dimension of it that uh, you do a good job of uh, of bringing up. Yeah, and and um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. One thing that unfortunately got left on the cutting room floor of the article uh, was a, a a sort of an episode from Rebecca Herman's recent book, "Cooperating with the Colossus," which tells the story of basing in Latin America, which is mm-hmm. on its you know itself a very um, I think undertold story um, when people and, and and specifically it's the history of uh military basing in Latin America in World War II which uh, I think when people think of World War II they don't think of um uh you know troops stationed in in Latin America necessarily but um she conducted really rich archival research uh one of the stories that really stuck with me was um a case from 1942 called the uh, known as the Breeden case um there was a US private station in Panama in a small village who uh, sort of after drinking on a uh outside of the base he was sort of terrorizing local women um and ended up fixating on one following her home and when she rebuffed him she he ended up lighting her house on fire luckily everyone got out but um it was destroyed and so the panamanian government was i think appropriately incensed by this attempted to um you know because this happened off base off duty it uh, theoretically should have been within Panama's jurisdiction. The U.S. military um, did not allow that to happen, uh, essentially steamrolled the Panamanian government and uh, dealt with it as an internal matter. And so this was, you know, this, I think, tipped off widespread protests and just, um, uh, you know, deep resentment, I think, for, for, for many reasons, not just the crime itself, but then also the the, the double injury of, of um, a violation of sovereignty, of, of um, a lack of respect. And this being one of the one of United States's most strategic allies, um, you know, the home to the Panama Canal Zone. So I think that one episode illustrates, you know, just how dangerous these situations can be to U.S. vital interests when you have so many troops stationed overseas. Obviously, this represents a minority of active military members, but even a minority can can really. Um, spoil U.S. interests abroad. And so I think this, this resentment among local populations is, is a really important piece of the story that is almost never brought up in think tank reports, um, policy discussions, uh, but has a real, um, I think, valence on the ground 
Uh, David Vine is someone I think who's been putting together a database of anti-basing movements across the world. Uh, and I think by last count, he counted something like um, 30 countries have historically had significant anti-basing protests, um, which, you know, obviously it's, it's bad enough to have a resentment among the local population, but then that, that filters up to the, to the governments themselves as well. Tyler, I know we only have like a minute or two left, but I wanted to ask you about another story that you had written for Lawfare, um, author, you author, co-authored. It was called, uh, what the media has learned since 2016 and, and what it hasn't. And it's mostly about, uh, the media's responsibility in the Trump era about Trump and domestic politics and how reporters have a responsibility to call out Trump's falsehoods and lies. And you support the establishment of a democracy beat, saying such trends are particularly crucial in an environment of falsehoods, record low public trust in the media, and political candidates hostile to a free press. And you say misunderstandings, I'm quoting now, about what the press does and how it operates, coupled with attacks on the mainstream media from Trump and others, have taken a toll on one of democracy's most important institutions. But when it comes to foreign policy reporting on the most important foreign policy event in the last 20 years, the global war on terror typified by the invasion of Iraq, the media has acknowledged that it fell down on the job and it helped spread lies about WMD, engaged in jingoism and let powerful special interests in the Pentagon, the White House and the Capitol Hill tell the stories without, in many cases, fact checking or pursuing the other side of the story. So I wanted to ask you, one, do you, don't you think that's where the American people started losing faith in their institutions and in the media? And do you think that the media, in terms of foreign policy reporting, have learned their lessons today as they cover the war in Ukraine uh, and U.S.-NATO policies in that war and a lot of the issues that you're bringing up today, the overseas operations and the basing and the protests um, and if not, how can how can the media do its job to turn that kind of reporting and its responsibilities around? Yeah, uh, a great question. And I, I'm really uh, impressed how you connected those two articles because they were completely separate in my mind. Um, but yeah, a shout out to my my co-author, Quinta Jurassic. Um, I think it. Yeah, it's really interesting in thinking about the media's coverage of the ascendance of Donald Trump. And then sort of foreign policy coverage, because I think some of the worst impulses that allowed um, Trump to rise vis-a-vis the media are even worse with regard to U.S. Uh, foreign policy coverage because of um, a deference to national security concerns. I think one thing that is hopefully a positive upshot of the disasters of the global war on terror and how they were covered in the media is uh, a questioning of that deference. Um and I think uh, one of the things that we sort of pointed out as a positive trend in the media landscape um, coming out of 2016 and, and hopefully beyond was this, um, what I call show your work. So I think there's an assumption among journalists, especially uh, the bigger newsrooms, that people understand what journalistic ethics are. They understand what the process is. They understand sources. Um, but they, most readers, I think, really only uh, are on the receiving end of those, and they don't really know what happens behind the curtain. And so I think one thing that could be better in foreign policy reporting is more of this um, show-your-work ethos. So, you know, why are, how did, how did um, the New York Times come to report what they are about U.S. policy? 
I think it, you know in, around 9/11, uh, if readers had known that it was simply one source and one source was uh, someone in the White House and it was essentially a press release that they were parroting, I think readers would have questioned um, the veracity of that material and the and the reliability of it. So I think that trend hopefully um, can be uh, transported to, to foreign policy reporting even more. Um, and I think you are seeing that more. Um, people like Charlie Savage in the New York Times will. Uh, link to documents that were FOIA'd. He will explain the FOIA process. Um, the New York Times, for example, um, not to <laughs> butter them up too much because they are not without their faults as well, but they will often go in depth now um, about legal battles to obtain certain documents. And I think that that really gives, that lends reporting more credibility um, and it and it helps um, readers realize that they shouldn't just accept uh, stories on their face. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, I know that your, your piece was mostly about Trump and how reporters are deferential or use euphemisms um, and maybe are even um, they're deferential because of the financial motivations or uh, incentives to keep covering him because he's, you know, he's a ratings bonanza. But there are probably other incentives or dis incentives on the foreign policy side. I think a lot of reporters who aren't well-versed in foreign policy get intimidated by the national security state because the experts are saying this or that, you know, whether it be military, CIA, intelligence, um, or, or the, the political leadership in, in the White House and, and then tend to defer to. So I think there's probably an equal uh, problem with like the different dynamics uh, going on that probably need, need to be turned around as well. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we are seeing an erosion of the quote unquote blob, but uh, you're absolutely right. I think that deference is all the more dangerous in, in foreign policy reporting because there is such a stronger consensus on foreign policy um, ideas. Right. Uh, so for example, just to take the deterrence, um, the, the deterrence reasoning for, uh, for basing, I think people take on, on its face that bases deter, uh, enemies. Um, and I think it's, a, it's very reasonable to ask, do they actually, <laughs> when, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to, to find evidence for the case. Definitely. And uh, we, we appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Uh, I know you have to get going. Uh, uh, Tyler McBrien, uh, Managing Editor of Lawfare, uh, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>